I'm Henry Standage, and you're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Every day, students, professors, and workers attend the campus of Western University, making up a community of over 30,000 people. How we learn to act in these social spaces, whether they're as large as Western's campus or as small as a classroom, is a topic that fascinates researchers of behavior. Today's guest on the podcast, Anne Simon, is interested in the genetic factors that dictate how we form part of a group. She and I discussed how entities are born with this idea of space sharing, the nature versus nurture argument, and her own personal research. Do all animals share an idea of a normal social space? So all animals, uh, all entities that are alive actually, uh, do have a preferred distance to another one from the same species or even from another species. But your question is, do they share the same idea? And they probably do not do it for the same reasons. When bees are going to swarm together in order to fight together against a predator, and cattle also are going to be forming big groups, but they're not going to be so tied to each other. They're going to also form those big groups to also um, be more impressive towards predators. So you do not have all the same reasons to form those big groups. So it's not the same shared idea, mm-hmm. but it's the same notion that strength comes into groups and aggregation. Is that making sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So bottom line, they all have this inherent idea of social space. Yeah. They just have different reasonings. So basically, they would all have the same uh, idea that being attracted to another is important. But then how close you want to be is going to be um, depending on the reason why you want to be in a group. So if it's for warmth, you're going to be super tight. The bees, they need enough space in their swarm to be able to uh, fly, to move their wings. And uh, so we don't know exactly what is the repulsive thing that makes animals not touch each other. And it's clearly a balance between I want to be close, but not too close. And the not too close is going to really depend on what animal it is and why they're forming a group. So in a school of fish, they tend to be uh, very tight also to form a very big group uh, and to look like one big entity. But at night in anchovies, for example, they tend to spread more apart um, and it's not clear why. Maybe um, they need more space when they're swimming at night. Uh, So we don't really know. Why did you decide to run trials with fruit flies when you're exploring this idea of space? Because I'm interested in understanding the genetics underlying social interactions that would be conserved throughout evolution. And the fruit fly Um, has been shown to have a lot of conserved behaviors at the molecular level, such as uh, the clock. There was a Nobel Prize this year in medicine uh, and physiology uh, for researchers who identified the molecular mechanisms behind our daily cycle um, at the protein and genetic level, and that's conserved. Several years ago also, or 20 years ago, people started deciphering the molecular mechanism underlying memory formation, and that's conserved through mice and human. 
So something very important for survival would also be conserved because it would come from a very early ancestor, common ancestor. And so I'm making the hypothesis that social interactions are extremely important for survival. It's going to help an individual if they know how to properly interact with their group and that the underlying basis will be conserved. And so one behavior that we see conserved is this notion of recognizing others and behaving properly. And social space is one of those normal interactions. In, in human, we know when we're too close or too far, and it goes beyond some uh, cultural differences. There are some people that are just odd you within every culture. You mentioned flies have this internal clock that they share with humans. Is there anything else that we might have in common with them? Uh, sleeping, sleep patterns. So the learning and memory that I mentioned, um, the need to um, recognize food uh, that, that's caloric. Um, well, and reproduction, the basic needs for survival. Uh, food, sex, and sleep, and uh, aggression is going to go. So some flies in certain contexts, really not very common for flies, for fruit flies, but uh, they can become territorial and aggressive. And that's going to involve the same uh, neurotransmitter as in human, serotonin. What other neurotransmitters dictate how we occupy these social spaces? So I haven't found whether serotonin is important for social space or not. It's been found by others that it's important for aggression. Um, what I have found is that dopamine is important for social space. And it's been confirmed very recently uh, by another lab. And so it seems to be important in giving a weight to the information of whether there is others. So flies that are isolated tend to be further apart compared to flies who are reared in groups of flies. And if they don't produce enough dopamine, they are behaving the opposite. So they seem to not recognize whether they are in group or not. Um, and so dopamine is known in mammals, uh, including humans, to be important for motivation. So basically, if you're doing something that's pleasurable, it's going to release some uh, feeling good um, neurotransmitters and hormones like serotonin or excitocin. And dopamine is going to say, oh, we want to do more of that. So it's going to be the motivation. So it's not dopamine who makes you feel good. Dopamine makes you want to do it more because it is... Are rewarding and uh, successful for your survival. What experiments were you doing with these fruit flies to test this? So we put the flies in uh, 2D light chambers, so they are very thin so that the flies can move but they can't go on the back of each other. And so we let them explore that chamber uh, as a group and once they're done and they realize there is no exit and no food, they tend to aggregate from a group and settle at a reproducible distance from each other. On average, half of the flies are within two body length distance. That's their preferred place. So it's a very easy readout. We take a picture, we have an image analysis and a little uh, a program just tells us, uh, here's the distance to the flies. So we analyze that statistically and we can modify it either by um, changing the environment. So for example, the social experience, also whether they're mated or not. So if they have been mated, they are closer than they, if they have not. We can also put toxin in the food 
and check whether that's affecting the social distance. And we've been playing with different genes to understand a little bit what's the circuitry that goes from, there is another one, and I'm gonna decide how close to be uh, to that other one. And we've been on one hand looking at um, circuitry known already to affect behavior in the fly, like dopamine, but also candidate gene in human uh, that were associated to uh, neuropsychiatric disorders to see whether there would be a conserved uh, role. A lot of neuropsychiatric disorders um, lead to abnormal uh, social interactions like autism and on the other hand, schizophrenia. And so uh, two of those genes that we've been working on, uh, indeed, when they're mutated, lead to abnormal social space. Is there a difference in the way that male and female fruit flies understand and act in social spaces? Yeah, that's very interesting. So they, they tend to settle at a very similar distance. So we put them, we separate them because males are going to engage in courting the females readily. So if we mix them, we're going to have groups of couples of flies and males chasing the females, the females stopping regularly. So we put flies that have been mated, so they are not gonna be searching for a mate, that have been well fed, and so they've been together, male and female mixed, and just before testing them, we separate them. So we test males versus males, so how close are the males gonna be to another males, and how close the females are gonna be to another female. And the distance they choose, regardless of their sex, is around two body lengths apart. The interesting thing is that the manipulations we give do not lead to the same, there's a sex-specific defect. So some of the genetic mutants, candidate gene for autism, for example, have a sex-specific difference, where uh, the males behave in one direction and the female in another. So one of the undergrad doing an analysis with me uh, this year was looking at certain neurons, which are known to be um, expressing different genes in males and females and was able to, um, when she's knocking down those neurons, their function in males to affect their social behavior, and when she's knocking down the function of those neurons, so inactivating those neurons in females, she's also able to affect their behavior in the way we see in other manipulations. So they seem to, they receive the same information, there's another one. They have the same output, I'm gonna be two body length apart, but they seem to be using different circuitry. So mm. that's very interesting. Wow. Yeah. So they're receiving the same information and they behave the same way, but they seem to use different paths it's in the brain. It's being processed differently? Yeah, it's being, exactly, processed, integrated differently. Wow. So that's really very interesting to us. How would you frame us. this abnormal behavior in a nature versus nurture context? It's really the perception we're having, but their behavior might be appropriate based on their past experience. Right, so mm -hmm. what you're asking is whether the environment is playing a role or is it the genes that are playing a role? So in human, we're trying to understand that, the role of the environment and the genes. So the disorders in which people have abnormal social behavior are different, so not typical, atypical social behavior would be a, a neutral way to say that. Um, we know for those disorders like autism and schizophrenia that there is a mixture of genes and environment. And it's a lot of different genes and it's hard to figure out which genes, but we know that there is a different weight of genes and environment. Both are important. 
in flies. I'm trying to work on that because one of the mutant on which I'm working, which is a candidate gene for autism, there is no effect on it apart if you modify the environment. So those flies, when they have that mutation in a gene that's uh, important for neuron communication, they're fine. But if they've been socially isolated before, they behave in a different manner than um, the flies without that mutation, where they have a more extreme, they, they're way further apart, they don't behave normally. And so here, what would be interesting is to start studying the role of the environment on the genes. So on one hand, we have genes that play a role. On the other hand, we have the environment that plays a role. But I think what is relevant for human studies is those genes that don't have any effect before there's a trigger. And so that's what we're trying to understand right now, those mutations that only lead to an, uh, an atypical space when um, the environment has been changed. Is there any research that you're looking to do regarding flies that doesn't have to do anything with making a parallel to humans or the way we think? I'm also interested in another type of social signal, actually. So there's a paper on which we're working now that is um, looking at how flies that are stressed are leaving behind them a certain marking that other flies are going to avoid. And uh, so it looks like an alarm pheromone. And so we are, we're also investigating that other type of uh, response. That's Is that territorial or are they helping other flies? So that's a good question, and that's what we're trying to understand. If it's an alarm pheromone, it's probably released on purpose to um, let other flies know there's a problem. But it might be also, so we don't know exactly now if it's just a byproduct of them being stressed. What is it exactly that they're releasing? They're releasing a chemical that might just be um, fear, and then others are smelling its fear, or it might be a real signal don't come here, it'll be like the deer tail coming up. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still working on that, but uh, we'd like to identify, so one of the chemical is CO2, but there is another chemical, we'd like to identify that other chemical and see um, how it is emitted, how it's perceived, and whether we could use it for other purposes. That was my discussion with Ann Simon. Research such as Anne's questions the very actions that we've come to take for granted and investigates how much free will society actually allows us. The next time you see somebody acting abnormally or out of order, think about whether or not those orders are justified or simply another custom that we've become comfortable with. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.